two pre-notes. My first trip here, I had the opportunity to audit three classes. They were all wonderful. I've had 17 years of formal education. But in a very brief time, the space of one class, one of the tutors here made the strongest first impression on me than any other teacher I've ever had. And I've had some great ones. And of course, I'm talking about dear Molly Guston. <laughs> in college, I majored in philosophy and English and minored in math. If I had known her, I would have majored in math. I have never seen anything like it. And we hit it off immediately. And I even asked her if I could call her Granny. And she acceded, but she had a look on her face as though, uh, you want to run around the block, I think I know who'll win. <laughs> but the depth of integrity of dear Mrs. Guston and the breadth of knowledge, especially about music and mathematics, able to be shared in the space of one class that I audited. I'll never forget it, and clearly I've never forgotten her. And I mention her especially because I gather in these days we remembered the seventh anniversary of her passing home to the Lord. And I did offer Mass for her yesterday. So I hope that uh, as we gather today, she feels all of our love. Secondly, a uh, quick story about Pope St. John Paul II. I had the great privilege of working part-time with an archbishop who served Pope John Paul II very closely day by day. And when I went for my first ad limine, the official visit of the bishop to the pope, because I was the youngest one, imagine that, I was last to see him privately. So I went to Pope St. John Paul, and he remembered generally who I was. But uh, it was not an unfamiliar meeting. So at the end, he was using the card in those days. And his secretary said to me, we're going to the same room because the Holy Father was to address our whole group of bishops after I met with him. So he said, well, since we're going to the would you help me help the Holy Father into the cart? So I did. But being who I am, I couldn't leave well enough alone. And I said, Holy Father, since we're going to the same place, can I get a lift <laughs> with you? And he stared me up and down as he often did and said, no. <laughs> Too fat. I bring that up because he's a saint, and he was infallible, and he proclaimed me fat. 
So I have no trouble dealing with that. I... Dear Dr. McLean, Mrs. McLean, dear tutors, staff, students, family and friends, it is truly an honor to be here with you today. And to you, my dear graduates, congratulations. What a beautiful occasion this is as we think about how the beauty of God is reflected in the apostolate of TAC and as we think about how the beauty of God is reflected in each one of your lives. And on top of all of that, we find ourselves in a beautiful setting today where at this moment it does not rain. Most college campuses these days are places of chaos and political correctness, and those two feed each other. But look at us here. Instead of chaos, there is order. And instead of political correctness, there is truth and charity. The prologue of St. Thomas Aquinas Summa Contra Gentiles is a commentary on Proverbs 8, 7, as you know well. My mouth shall meditate truth, and my lips shall hate wickedness. This text speaks of truth and charity, for hatred of wickedness belongs to charity. Now, we live in the world of nice and sometimes in the church of nice. And yet, we all have within ourselves a certain aggressive energy that spells itself out sometimes in hatred. St. Thomas has the key to channeling that hatred. Hate wickedness. And make no bones about it. Because that aggressive energy that we all have is best employed hating wickedness. And you know I mean hating wickedness, not the wicked person. There's too little show of hatred for wickedness in our world. As a matter of fact, as I've said previously, the peers, your peers in this generation and so many others, are running toward hell with much more enthusiasm and strength then so many mediocre people are running toward heaven. And that's the problem. Aquinas begins his commentary in the very first lines of the Summa Contra Gentiles by quoting the sayings of the philosopher Aristotle, it belongs to the wise man to order things, and wisdom orders all things in truth and in charity. A college campus disordered by political correctness is a place of chaos. A college campus rightly ordered by truth and charity is a place where wisdom can be sought and cultivated. 
I really hope that you will always look back on your time here with the deepest gratitude. It's a rare gift to live as you have done in such a rich spiritual and intellectual culture, a truly Catholic culture. Of course, the wider culture in which we live is not a Catholic culture. And I suspect that you've noticed that. In your studies here, you have learned how to think, how to reason, how to express your thoughts clearly. You've striven for that eloquentia perfecta, which St. Ignatius Loyola considered such a high ideal. How, with zeal for the truth and charity for your opponent, you have prayed with St. Thomas that God would grant you a keen understanding, a retentive memory, method, and ease in learning, insight in interpretation, and eloquence in speech from the Orazio Ante Studio. And I trust, especially as I listen to the various talks given and the enjoyable informal conversations, I trust that God has granted that prayer. For each one of you. These are rare gifts in our time. We, we live in the age of the eclipse of reason. Quid est veritas? What is truth? That was Pontius Pilate's question. Ego sum veritas. I am the truth. That is the answer. Jesus Christ is the word, the logos made flesh, full of grace and truth. He is wisdom incarnate. He is the way, the truth, and the life. For this I was born. For this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth hears my voice. What is truth? To quote Thomas Aquinas again, truth lies in the conformity between the mind and reality. If I say to you, it's raining outside. How great that it isn't. How do you know whether what I said is true? You look out the window and see whether what I said agrees with what in fact is the case. Aristotle defined truth in a marvelously clear way, using words of only one syllable each. Truth is to say of what is that it is, to say of what is not that it is not. That's what truth is. And believe it or not, that offends people. How does our culture describe truth? Truth is the opposite of whatever President Trump says or does. <laughs> it's the politicization of the truth. And goodness and beauty have also been politicized. Just about the most offensive thing you can say now is that men are men and women are women. Who would ever think that's controversial? If you're a man, then be a man, and if you're a great woman, be a woman. That's speaking the truth, and that's what our world does not want to hear. And so we don't know what marriage is if we're not even sure what it means to be a male or female. People are even trying to come up with proper names 
to give gender-neutral children. The one I read was Psy. Not, not C-Y, but ha. Ah. So I guess we're supposed to say, come on over here, little ha. Ah. So a part of your mission is to make the voice of reason heard in our culture. You have been equipped with an outstanding education, and that is a gift you have received and that you must also share with others. You must shine the light of reason on the darkness of our world, and that often means you have to be politically incorrect. And so now let's be politically incorrect with and like St. John the Baptist, the patron saint of political incorrectness. <laughs> Let's celebrate the 50th anniversary of Humanae Vitae, something we should do at such a wonderful institution. What does Humanae Vitae tell us? Of course, we know that it absolutely condemns artificial methods of birth control, abortion, sterilization, contraception. But why? Because there is an inseparable link between the procreative and the unitive dimensions of human sexuality. That sacred space of sexual union between husband and wife was created by God for his purpose. And the main purpose of that sexual union is the generation of new life. That's the, at the heart of God's plan for human sexuality, the generation of new life. It's hardly surprising that Almighty God should be interested in those activities through which he brings new life into the world. How would he not be interested in that? People say the church should stay out of the bedroom. No. Our culture shouldn't be focused on the lowest instinctual part of the bedroom. God's plan is to bring to life the height of possibility for sexual union. This is not just about biological reproduction. It's about procreation, which is cooperation with God's own act of creation, procreation, where he creates a new human being, a unique and unrepeatable human person with an immortal soul and an eternal destiny. Contraception excludes the procreative dimension of sexual union, and by doing that, it exiles God from the very space which he designed for himself to be the place where he would create new human life, new human beings called to loving union with him. That's why contraception is a sin. It debases something beautiful, 
like graffiti on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. When God drew up his original plan for marriage, he painted himself into the picture, like Raphael painted himself into his painting of the School of Athens. The sexual union between husband and wife is the sacred space where God himself dwells, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There doesn't exist a more beautiful picture of marriage than that, and it was painted by God himself. But what has our culture done with that picture of marriage? Well, as Leon Cass tells us in his work, Leading a Worthy Life, Finding Meaning in Modern Times, our culture sees sexual union as having two side effects. One side effect is children, and the other side effect is disease. Those can both be avoided. Well, if those are side effects, what does our culture say that sexual union is all about? Of course, it's about pleasure. And of course, if sexual union is about pleasure then there can be no lasting marriage because what is there in that goal of pleasure that's worth pledging one's life for? As a matter of fact, most people find out that if one pledges one life for pleasure with a single other person, then one is denying oneself all sorts of other options. Our culture has made it all about pleasure. And so there is no marriage. And so it doesn't matter what it means to be a male or what it means to be a female. That is a debased picture of the beauty of God's plan, where the Holy Trinity inhabits the space of sexual union and there sometimes chooses to bring forth new life. What else can we say about God's plan for marriage, God's plan for sexual union? We can say that in God's plan, sexual union is all about the next generation, providing and caring for the next generation in light of death. It's not just about pleasure. It's about providing and caring for the next generation in light of the fact that we will die. Parents know they can't live forever but they can hand on a living legacy in this world. We have an innate longing for immortality, and that longing is ultimately satisfied only through eternal life with God in heaven. But there is also a natural desire to leave something of ourselves in the world in which we can't remain forever. That kind of love which the Greeks called eros contains in it something of the striving for immortality, this striving to transcend our limitations. So sexual union is about future generations according to God's plan, and it's also about the reality of death. Those are godly concerned concerns. But our culture is more concerned with pleasure. In God's plan for marriage, where the Trinity is there in that sacred space between husband and wife, where future generations are cared about and provided for in light of death, sexual union is about the good of children. And what is for the good of children? To be born from the loving union 
of a father and a mother who are committed to remaining together for life in service of their family. That's beautiful. And that beauty attracts, as it is proclaimed clearly, faithfully, and forcefully. And you have to do that. You have to proclaim the truth about marriage clearly, faithfully, and forcefully. Many of you probably will get married. It will be part of your mission to proclaim the truth and the beauty of marriage through your living witness as husbands and wives. That's a beautiful thing. It will be your mission to lay down your lives for each other and for your children. That's what marriage is about, sacrifice. I might suggest to you young men thinking about getting married that when you propose, don't say, will you marry me? Say this instead. Will you allow me to be the one who lays down his life for you? (laughs) And that's what you should ask her because that's what marriage is all about. It's about children. It's about sacrifice. Now some of you will probably not get married. Some of you will answer God's call to give up marriage, and that is also a sacrifice. Some of you will give up marriage in order to devote yourselves to God as consecrated religious or as priests. As Jesus said to the rich young man in the gospel, if you would be perfect, go give away everything. Come follow me. That includes giving up marriage. That is probably the greatest sacrifice that a human being can make up front. And it wouldn't be a sacrifice if marriage were not something truly good and truly beautiful. What else can we say about humane vitae? Marriage is rooted in human nature. The moral law is rooted in human nature. So we need to recover an understanding of human nature, of what it means to be human, what it means to be male and female. And this begins with the rediscovery of final causes of purpose in nature. The moderns have forgotten that things have purposes and that meaning lies in the fulfillment of purposes. And so moderns are unable to see the objective grounds of natural law morality. But it should be obvious that the primary purpose of eating, for example, is to nourish and sustain one's health. That's what eating is for. That's an objective fact. And that's why it's good for us to eat healthy food, because it fulfills the purpose of eating. And that's why gluttony is wrong, because it frustrates the purpose of eating. When I speak in this vein, my credibility is not at its peak. <laughs> Live with it. <laughs> I believe St. Thomas Aquinas had a similar problem. <laughs> or you can think about speech. The primary purpose of speech is communication. 
That's what speech is for. And that's why speaking truth is good and why lying is wrong, because it frustrates the purpose of speaking. This is the basis of natural law reasoning about sexual morality. The primary purpose of sexual union is the procreation of children. That's what it's for. And that's why contraception is wrong, because it frustrates the purpose of sexual union. But all of this sounds like a foreign language if you're talking to people who have lost sight of the basic fact that there is such a thing as human nature and that natures are ordered toward the fulfillment of certain ends or goals. If you want to have a fruitful conversation, if you want to get somewhere and not just argue endlessly, you have to find some common ground to start with. But the sphere of the common moral ground we share in our culture keeps getting smaller. So we have to go all the way down to first principles. We have to be able to build arguments step by step from basic self-evident truths all the way to their remote and often complex conclusions. And that requires patience. We have to recover an understanding of human nature, of what it means to be human, and of what it means to be male and female. If we do not want to see our culture become more and more dehumanized, and that has already been going on for a long time. The end of natural law means the end of democracy, and ultimately the end of civilization. You can't have a civilized society, and you certainly can't have a just democracy without a basic respect for human beings and for their intrinsic value and dignity. Respect for the dignity of the individual human being is grounded in the natural law. Everyone today loves to speak about human rights. They think they have a right to whatever they feel they need. But we can only speak intelligibly about human rights as human if we have a common understanding of human nature. Without human nature, there can be no human rights. And without human rights, that is rights objectively grounded in human nature, in natural law, the only rights that remain are those dictated by power. As our culture rejects reason and truth, especially truth about the natural law, it drifts toward dictatorship. That's where we've been heading, because if right cannot be determined by reason and the truth of human nature and the natural law, then it will be determined by power raw power. And so the words of the prophet Isaiah are fulfilled in our time. Truth has fallen in the public squares and righteousness cannot enter. Which brings me to my last point, which is this. To preach the truth requires courage. To preach the saving truth of Jesus Christ has always required courage. 
but even to speak basic truths about human reason or human nature or human sanity, even that requires courage. People today have been taught to be offended. People live to be offended. That's why they need a safe space and a cry closet. And what they mean by that seems to be a space where they can be safe from hearing the voice of reason and truth. If you speak the truth, you might not be safe. Those who speak truth to a culture where everyone is looking to be offended will be persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The world has hated Christ because he gave testimony that its works are evil. The world will also hate you if you speak out against its evil works, if you hate wickedness. But if the world hates you, know that it hated me before you. In the world you will have distress, but have confidence. I have overcome the world. So if you're going to shine the light of reason in a dark world, you're going to need courage. To quote St. Thomas again, courage denotes a certain firmness of mind in bearing and, underst- and withstanding those things where it is most difficult to be firm. In other words, courage makes you discouragement-proof. One of the devil's principal weapons, especially a great, against great young women and men, is discouragement. You can be discouragement. You can be discouragement proof. This is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which has already been given to you in baptism and confirmation, to make you courageous in witnessing to the truth the truth of Jesus Christ which is known by faith and the truth of the human person and of human nature which can also be known by reason. Now, many Catholics forget that they were confirmed and then they are hit by a barrage of human problems and they feel that they're about to be overwhelmed. When you were confirmed, God the Holy Spirit promised you that you would have every grace you need to survive and overcome any problem. If you forget your confirmation, you forget that. Problems come, oh, what am I to do? Demand that the Holy Spirit fulfill the promise that he made to you at confirmation. That's what you do. So if you're, courage is a gift infused by God and is also acquired and perfected through practice. If you want to be courageous in speaking the truth, you have to practice doing it precisely in those situations when it is difficult. Don't be like Peter during the Passion, sitting quietly with your head down, hoping that no one will notice you. You are called to be like Peter on the day of Pentecost, speaking the truth boldly 
without waiting to be asked. You have been sacramentally equipped by your baptism and confirmation and intellectually equipped by your education to be witnesses to the truth of Jesus Christ. That means you must witness to the truth as Christ taught it, and that means at times you offend lots of people. So it's very hard to be a witness to Jesus Christ. It's easier just to go with the flow, go along to get along. Lukewarmness must be cast out. There is no place left in the church for wimps. All those places are filled. (laughs) It takes courage to speak the truth of Christ. Do not be afraid. Let me close with the words of the St. Ignatius Loyola-inspired Fundador Hymn which so well describes our present situation and gives me so much inspiration. Hell's black legions are teeming, their harsh cry is heard, or the heath see them marching, their swords flashing bared. Soldiers of Christ, forward to the fray. Sure your heart is no stranger to fear, Neath the gloom. Calvary's light through the night brightens your brow like the noon. Now sounds the war trumpet, and fearless the holy host fights without respite. Though swords clash on swords, yet their banner is high. Faithful omen of the laurel crown and of peace. Christ has overcome the world. He alone is the only hope who never disappoints. God bless you all. Praise be Jesus Christ.